This podcast from the Knight Commission on Intercollegiate Athletics is a recording from the Summit on the Collegiate Athlete Experience at George Washington University on January 30th, 2006. This segment is titled Recruiting, Ethics and Athlete Welfare During the Recruiting Process, with remarks by Gerald Turner, Myron Roll, a graduate of the Hun School in Princeton, New Jersey, and a prospective football athlete enrolled at Florida State University, Ruth Riley, former basketball athlete for the University of Notre Dame and a current player for the WNBA's Detroit Shock, Scotty Reynolds, prospective basketball athlete at Herndon High School, Joe Wooten, head boys basketball coach at O'Connell High School in Arlington, Virginia, Dan Wetzel, sports journalist, for Yahoo.com and author of Glory Road, Peter Roby, the director of Northeastern University Center for the Study of Sport and Society, and discussion among Knight Commission members and panelists regarding recruiting. For more on the Knight Commission, visit www.knightcommission.org. The second panel is entitled Ethics and Student Welfare uh, During the Recruiting Process. I'm Gerald Turner, uh, Vice Chair of the Knight Commission and President of SMU and joined by a number of my colleagues on the Knight Commission. And so we'll conduct this uh, panel much like uh, the last one in which uh, we'll have remarks from each of the individuals who have agreed to visit with us today as a part of uh, uh, this presentation. And then when they are completed, then we'll have questions from uh, the panelists here. And uh, we'll see how that goes. And this is scheduled to last about an hour and 45 minutes, as was the other one. So uh, as informative as the first one was, I think you'll find this one also to be instructive. I'll introduce uh, members of our panel on my left, your right, uh, as they are asked to make their presentation. And so uh, you will be meeting them uh, as they go. Each has been asked to make uh, four to five uh, minutes of uh, comments regarding issues regarding rec uh, concerning recruiting. In times past, the major concerns of uh, those in higher education were simply to make sure that uh, boosters were in line and that friends of your program uh, were not being too involved at all with uh, the recruitment of student-athletes and that the basic rules that we all agreed upon as an association were followed. But life has gotten a lot more complex uh, in the last uh, decade or so with the creation of websites that uh, follow high school recruiting to where high school student-athletes are now known nationally before uh, they ever sign with a college or a university simply by the proliferation of these sites. With the growth in uh, club programs that are outside both the high school and the uh, NCAA or the colleges and universities making up the NCAA and the influence of these coaches upon the decisions of young men and women uh, as they decide and they and their parents decide which direction these student athletes should go. And then also, of course, the influence of just uh, shoe companies and others who are in the commercial world but trying to influence uh, the attitudes of uh, these student-athletes long before they get uh, to the university. So with the usual sources of influence and our worries about them, certainly recruiting and uh, making sure that 
Uh, the recruiting is done ethically and with the, the best welfare of the student athletes and their families in mind has become an even greater challenge as we go. And so to begin uh, our dialogue, dialogue on this today, our first uh, presenter is Myron Roll, who uh, just graduated this December from Hun High School in Princeton, New Jersey. He was a 4.0 student. He's enrolled at Florida State University, uh, where he's a first-year student just beginning his collegiate career. He's a defensive back, was one of the top in the country. He's accompanied by his father, Whitney Roll, and his mother, Beverly, who are here to uh, provide him support and encouragement also. So, Myron, we're delighted to have you with us and look forward to your comments. Thank you. All right, well, <clears throat> I attended the Hunt School of Princeton, New Jersey, as was stated, and uh, I recently graduated December 16th, and I enrolled at Florida State uh, January 9th. I graduated early. I had enough credits in high school to do that, and uh, my recruiting process was, was very intense and very interesting, and, and that's the first word that comes to my mind, intense, because it started uh, the summer of my sophomore year. Um, my brother, um, who's older than me, he's about 21 years old. He attends St. John's University in Queens, New York. He told me about, you know, a few camps that I should go to just to sort of get my name out there and uh, just be noticed. And I went to the Oklahoma summer camp. We drove 24 hours from New Jersey all the way out to Norman, Oklahoma, and that was quite an experience. But uh, we drove out there, and I did really well at the camp. I got moved up from the freshman to sophomore group and put with the seniors and uh, won MVP. And at the end of the camp, um, actually, this was just after I, I made a play. A, a receiver was running a post route, and, and I broke up the ball. And I see in the middle of the field, Bob Soups was standing right there saying, Myron, come over here one second. And I said, wow, this is, this is Bob Soups. Like, wow, this is crazy. And, uh, and he calls me into his office after the camp is over. I try on his rings and his watches and, and all that. And he shows me, you know, that he won National Coach of the Year and Oklahoma's the number one team in the country. And they offered me a scholarship right then and there. And uh, that was the first offer I got. They were, at that time, they were number one ranked team in the country. So that really just started my recruiting process. That started, you know, that, that allowed me to know that, hey, I could play college football. You know, I'm going against some of the best players in the country at this camp, and, and I excelled, and I, and I could play at this next level. And from then on, um, you know, it was just like a snowball effect. My name started to grow in Internet recruiting sites, you know, in the, in, the, in the recruiting circles, message boards and newspaper articles and things like that. People started to gain notice of this super sophomore from New Jersey, uh, this defensive back that, you know, people were likening to Sean Taylor or Ronnie Lauder or whatever it was. Um, I started to fill out questionnaires in my sophomore year. Um, but my, my real experience in the recruiting world didn't really start until the summer going into my junior year. I went to combines. Now, combines are these things, are these events that college coaches can attend, um, and your internet recruiting sites such as Rivals.com, Scout.com, they're at these combines, and you run your 40-yard dash, you get timed. You run a, um, a pro agility shuttle, you get timed. You bench press, how many times you could do 185 pounds. You do a vertical jump, a broad jump. For me, you go through different defensive back drills, and then you go on to the one-on-ones, which is really showtime. That's where you show out and you go against the receivers, the quarterbacks hold the ball, and, uh, and you really show what you can do. And at these combines, I did very well. I won MVP at both of the combines that I attended. Um, several universities were attending these combines and offered me scholarships on the spot. They invited me to their summer camps, and I uh, started to gain more notice and attention from these colleges and also from the websites. They started talking more about me. Um, you know, they, they, asked, they started asking questions about me. Well, I went to a prestigious prep school in Princeton. I had a 4.0 GPA. I had 1340 SATs. I wanted to be a neurosurgeon when I get older. I don't just want to play football. You know, 
aspire to be something better than that. So, uh, you know, my story started to get out, and people started to take notice. And, and uh, that summer going to my junior year was, was incredible. My junior year started, and um, I had maybe about three to four coaches in my school every day. And they were from all the way from USC to Michigan to Washington to Texas. Um, Jim Trestle showed up, Lloyd Carr. I mean, I think the, the assistant coach from Michigan was at my school more times than my head coach, who was a, um, a, a, a lieutenant at Prince, um, in Princeton Township. I mean, I, I, this coach was at my school so much, just eating breakfast all the time. And, and I just, you know, I just got used to him being there. Uh, and what it also did, you know, having um, all these coaches come to my school allowed for my teammates to benefit from as well, some of which who, you know, were going to go to or sinus or, or, you know, some D3 schools, some, you know, didn't have any offers, were going to walk on to certain schools. That allowed for them to get opened up to the recruiting process, and um, my exposure helped them, you know, earn Division One scholarships. And my teammates, I think I had six that year that went to uh, D1, um, you know, all from schools that came to see me and, and saw their and evaluated their tape and, uh, and offered them scholarships. Um, the summer of my senior year, uh, going into my senior year, I sort of just relaxed a little bit. I didn't go to any combines or camps. I visited all my schools. I know I wanted to commit. I wanted to commit to a university before I, uh, my senior year started, September 1st, because I wanted to get it out the way. I mean, I had gone through the process so long, and it was so uh, intense and sometimes overwhelming with the amount of phone calls I received from college coaches uh, coupled with Internet recruiting sites. I wanted to get out the way because it's a lot of pressure. And fortunately, I had four older brothers and my parents, my dad sitting back here, my mother uh, in the audience right now, that really just, you know, sheltered me from all that, you know. There were times they screened their phone calls um, where, you know, they couldn't talk to me. If recruiting sites got my cell phone number, you know, it just... I, I sometimes put their their number in, number in as don't pick up because it just got to a point where I just I, I couldn't take it that much longer. So I took all my visits to schools, uh, Penn State, uh, Michigan, Miami, Florida, Florida State, um, and Oklahoma in the summertime, and I had a great time on my recruiting visits. These colleges knew that I'm somebody who focuses on a- academics, and education is a priority to me. So they let me see the biology departments. They let me talk to neuroscientists within the university. Um, they put me together with you know, other uh, student athletes who are very focused on uh, academics. I got to meet President T.K. Weatherall. I got a text message from Governor Jeb Bush on my visit to Florida State. Um, I met uh, the president of, of Florida, uh, Mr. Beecham. I met David Borum, the president of, of o- Oklahoma, Barry Switzer, Jimmy Johnson. I mean, Warren Sapp happened to be in the same room I was in when I walked into Miami. Emma Smith was around the corner when I walked to Florida. Um, you know, just the, the amount of attention I got and, and, and the different things that happened to me on these recruiting visits just to pique my interest and get me to like this school even more was, was just incredible. Um, and I, you know, it's, it's, it was exciting. I'm not going to lie. It was, it was exciting. It was interesting. It was a new experience for me and my family. And the way we went about it was that I included my family in everything I did. All the visits I, I went to, they were there. All the decisions that I made, they were a part of it. When we evaluated the schools, we looked at how many academic All-Americans these schools had, how much TV exposure they had, um, you know, our relationship with the defense coordinator. Was the defense coordinator going to be there for my full four years? Um, you know, Bobby Bowden, Joe Paterno, you know, they're older. You know, are they going to be there for my tenure at, at Florida State or Penn State? You know, we took all of that in consideration. We made a whole list, and we looked at it. We talked about it extensively, about each school that I was considering, and we came upon that Florida State was the best choice for me. On September 1st, I committed to Florida State, and uh, I didn't, it wasn't an emotional decision. I loved Deion Sanders and Peter Warwick and all those guys growing up, but I had to make a business decision based on, 
you know, what I can do. What can I get out of Florida State University? You know, I'm going through the exercise science program through pre-med uh, to eventually be a doctor. You know, I want to be involved in the community. Florida State players are active within Tallahassee. And I also want to prepare myself for the National Football League. Uh, and so once all those criteria were met by, you know, the schools that were looking at me, uh, I just had to come down to, you know, what school I felt most comfortable at, what school my parents felt safe sending me to, and uh, we came upon Florida State. There were a lot of positives and negatives that went into my recruiting process, um, you know, some of which I can elaborate on further. But uh, it was just, in all, it was a truly extraordinary time of my life, and I'll never forget it. Thank you. Thank you. Our next speaker is uh, Ruth Riley, who has the distinction of having been the MVP of the uh, Final Four of the NCAA and of also of the WNBA Finals. She also has a gold medal from the 2004 Olympic Games, but she's a graduate of Notre Dame and now plays with the Detroit Shock. So thank you for being with us. Thank you. Uh, well, my recruiting process was a little bit different since I'm older than these two guys on my right and left here. But um, I graduated in 97 from high school, and that was a little bit before the cell phone era just begun. So my recruiting process was a little a little more tame, but definitely um, one of the most stressful times I experienced as a, as a student athlete. Um, I grew up in the country, so as we speak about, I think, the the um, impact of a lot of the multimedia events, a lot of the traveling teams in basketball and um, the the shoe companies and stuff like that, I have a different perspective because without a lot of these things that we're going to speak about, I probably wouldn't have had a scholarship because I grew out in the I grew up in the country. Um, I went to a small school, like 83 people in my graduating class. So a lot of the college coaches wouldn't have found me in Macy, Indiana, if I hadn't played on uh, a traveling team or an AAU program that gave me exposure. So. In that respect, I guess I have a different different opinion than than probably a lot of people here. But um, I played on an AAU team, which is where I got a lot of exposure. Started being recruited um, my sophomore year in high school, and very shy person, so the recruiting process was pretty painful for me at the beginning. Um, it's kind of like. I guess, a dating game in a way because all these coaches are throwing their, their best foot forward at you. And you're trying to put your best foot forward at them because you want you don't know exactly where you want to go and which college you desire to attend. So therefore, you want them to, to think highly of you as well. And so you're a bit overwhelmed if you don't have somebody like Myron said, his family were, were highly involved and my mother was highly involved in my process as well. And if every, everyone was as grounded as mine, I don't think we'd have too much problem with the recruiting process. But um, I've, I was blessed to have my mom there to help me uh, evaluate the schools. I knew the academics was my top priority. I needed somewhere that had both the academic and athletic package. And so I actually did not attend any other official visit besides Notre Dame. I think once you find the perfect fit and you evaluate your situation, um, you realize which which college or which college is the best fit for you. And once I was on the campus in Notre Dame, I knew that it had the academics that I wanted. It had the faith faith based college that I wanted, and it also provided me with um, the athletic, um, I guess, platform that I was desiring. And so, 
in that respect, I, I committed early because, like he said, the, the recruiting process is, is very tough. And, you know, my mom would get frustrated at all the phone calls, you know, they'd be coming in um, to our house all the time. And you know, she'd definitely make me stay at home just to answer the phone sometimes because she got tired of it. But um, it's also hard for a high school student to tell a college no. You have these universities throwing a package at you, and it's very difficult when, you're, when you don't know exactly a lot about the university. So you want to make the right decision. So telling a university no when they're throwing a sales pitch at you is was probably the toughest thing that I had to face because uh, some coaches don't accept no very well. <laughs> and um, I thought that was the hardest part for me was narrowing down the list of schools that I wanted to attend and telling the universities that I didn't want to go there after allowing to be on your top 15, top 10. I think narrowing those schools after that was very difficult for me. And so um, I think that these guys could give you a little more insight, obviously, on, on the recruiting process in, in the modern day. But I think um, overall, I'm just... It was uh, it was stressful, but once you sit down and evaluate, um, you know I was fortunate enough to to make the right decision. Thank you, thank you very much. It's hard to believe five years knocks you out of the modern era. I know, but uh, maybe so. Our next uh, student athlete is uh, uh, Scotty Reynolds. He's a senior at Herndon Virginia High School. Uh, he's one of the top basketball players uh, in the country this year, and his high school team is in the top ten. His uh, parents, Rick and Pam Reynolds, are with him, and we're delighted to have you with us. And so, Scotty, we'll be delighted to hear from you. Uh, thank you for the opportunity. Um, I guess my my situation is a little bit different because um, I wasn't, you know, very very good at school. You know, it came hard for me. So, um, <laughs> sports was everything that. I always wanted and um, just wanted to be the best at everything. Um, but um, living in Chicago for a little bit and seeing um, what, what you know, college, well, people that were getting recruited, like um, D. Brown, that's at Illinois right now, um, talking to him and seeing what he went through, um, it kind of put my kind of life in perspective and, and like, Work ethic and worth um, work ethic, um, you know, not just on the basketball court, but but um, in school and and with education. But um, I moved back um, to um, Virginia in um, my freshman year, and I, I wasn't really recruited. I was you know a talented player or whatever, but um, I didn't. I I wasn't like you know number one. I wasn't on anybody's list really. But um, I had an okay freshman year and, um, uh, you know, averaged like nine points a game. And I was just, you know, a secondary player. So um, sophomore year, I was in the gym, you know, working hard and everything. And I had an okay sophomore year. And um, I came, averaged about 22, 23 points a game. And I was okay with that. And I saw that I was getting better. But um, I really wasn't getting any looks. And then um, I remember my first time I got I got a letter from uh, Clemson, and um, my my face I was running out the gym, you know, just throwing my hands up, just you know excited that I just got one letter, you know what I'm saying? And that that right there just that just made me work even harder to um, have schools coming around and um, 
um, you know, recognizing me. But um, I also knew that I had to get my book straight and um, being my my own, my favorite NBA team was uh, is the Chicago Bulls and Jay Williams, um, you know, had that unfortunate accident and knowing his story um, kind of put that in perspective that, you know, I need to find something other than basketball that's going to, you know, make me happy and make me be successful. And if I put the same work in, you know, basketball that I do, you know, in something else, I could be successful. So, um, and and I met him over the summer, this past summer at um, the NBA development camp. And I got down to sit and talk with him a little bit and talking to him just inspired me even more. And um, um, going and knowing his story, it was kind of like mine too. But um, going back to, I guess, my story or whatever, um, sophomore year, at the end of my sophomore year, I, I go to a, I get invited to a camp called um, the ABCD camp up in New York, and I'd never been to any camp. I really, I was, I'm always, I'm a mama's boy, so I kind of just, I just, you know, hip to my mom, you know, so I never really wanted to go overnight camps or anything. So I just stayed with my mom, you know. So this is, this is kind of really my first kind of, you know, I'm alone, you know, I'm, I don't know anybody really, and. Um, um, so I go out to this ABCD camp, and I'm like, these guys are big, you know, going out there, you know. But it's basketball, so, I, you know, I, I just want to play and, and compete, and I'm a competitor. So I go out there, and, you know, I do good, and I'm just out there. I see all these coaches. I've never seen so many coaches in my life. I, I think at the time, I, there wasn't a coach that came to my gym, and I kind of got, you know, criticized for not going to, like, a like a, a public school, you know. And I was thinking about going to a public school and things like that, like a like an O'Connell or something. But um, I, um, I went out to the ABCD camp, and, and I got good exposure. I was the, the number ranked, number one ranked um, junior there ahead of, um, I guess you've seen Greg, o- Greg Oden on TV, and he's, you know, I was ahead of him. So I was like, okay, I guess I did pretty good and then got to the All-Star game. But um, that kind of led up to, you know, Oklahoma and things like that. So um, the exposure, when you when you get um, exposure, a lot of people just come shooting at you, and you don't know who's real, who's fake, and who wants you, and who wants you, and, and whatnot. And um, I guess after that, going into my junior year, you just get it just keeps going and going, and you get, you know, a lot of texts, and there's. 300-something colleges and however many coaches, you know, that can text you or call you and things like that. So it, it kind of gets overwhelming and, and whatnot. But um, when you when you narrow it down, and my, I'm fortunate to have a family that that didn't push me to make a decision or it was kind of really up to me, um, you kind of realize that, you know, you know, you know what people are true to you. And um, um, for me... Um, I made my decision early in um, in March, and to go to, to uh, the University of Oklahoma, and um, that's really the the I guess you you kind of when I say you kind of realize who's real and um, fake or whatever. Um, playing AAU, you have 15 guys that are really highly highly recruiting and things like that, and they're saying one thing to you, and they're saying that you you look you get a text message from you know. From from one university, and then um, you're like, okay, okay, and then 
one of your teammates gets a, gets a text message. It's from the same university, and they're saying the same things, and y'all play the same position. And it's kind of like, really? You know, like, are you really, are you really doing this? Like, so um, I guess the, the recruiting process is kind of like, like um, Ruth said, you, you kind of like narrow your choices down, and, and you talk to your family, and you kind of make the best decision for um for yourself and to put yourself to be in a good position, not just for basketball, but later on in life to be successful. Okay, thank you. Thank you. Thank you. And uh, both for you and Myron, we're delighted to have your parents with us. And uh, uh, when we get into the Q&A, well then the, they may be asked some questions too. Our next speaker is Joe Wooten, who is the head boys basketball coach at Bishop O'Connell High School in Arlington. He's in his eighth season. They've won three state, uh, state titles and uh, have been ranked nationally on several occasions. He has a number of his players that are uh, at universities now and uh, certainly uh, has been a training ground for assistant coaches moving into college ranks also. So, Coach Wooten, we'd be glad to hear from you. Thank you. Thank you for having me. A um, couple things that I just would like to mention. I know it would give a little different perspective as far as uh, I'm a high school coach, so I see the recruiting from a little different um, than Scotty and Ruth and Myron would see it. Um, I really think that the, in the last five to seven years, it's um, that the influence of money from all different corporations have, have become uh, three or four times as worse. And I know you made a joke that five years puts you out of the modern age, but even in those five to seven years, things have tra changed tremendously. Um, I know from, from a basketball standpoint, the – um, influence of, of money from AAU coaches is tremendous. Um, the, the funny thing that I think is this is obviously you're looking at it from an NCAA standpoint. I look at it just from the recruiting of which AAU team you're going to be on. I know Scotty can probably feel this. He probably got as many calls of which AAU team he was going to be on when he was a sophomore and a junior in high school than he did from college coaches. And I guarantee that he was probably offered money by them and, and his parents were offered money. And I know they're people of value, but I've seen people offered three, four, five, ten, fifteen thousand dollars $15,000 so they would play on a certain AAU team. So forget even the college recruiting process. It, it's gotten down. The question is this, and I know this is tough for me as a high school coach, is that uh, most AAU coaches, and I'm not saying all AAU coaches are bad. There's obviously some good people that want to work with young, young men and women. Um, but a lot of them, their full-time job is to be a coach. And so they actually recruit probably 10 times more than NC any NCAA coach ever does. Um, puts more time in than, you know, Carl Hobbs here at GW or Gary Williams or John Thompson. And those guys are great coaches, but there's no way they could do it. And all they really have to worry about is putting together a team. And as a result, what ends up happening is they are not responsible to anyone. They're not responsible. I, I know I'm responsible to a principal, a president, and a school board. And in no way are all high school coaches perfect. I don't want to pretend that that's the case. But because of this unsanctioned um, kind of they're only responsible to themselves, it allows a, a forum for there to be a lot of corruption. Um, and, and I think one of the things that I, I think is a challenge from the NCAA is the main recruiting period for colleges, like Scotty had mentioned that he got seen at the ABCD camp, Ruth Rowley obviously with her AAU team, is not under the sanction of anyone other than the AAU coaches. And so therefore, they're not responsible to high school principals, and they can do whatever they'd like. And this is kind of unseemly, but I've had a player in the past that his AAU coach took him to Vegas 
brought them, uh, bought the members of the team prostitutes, gave them drugs. And I know that's kind of shocking, but I think that's probably the, the rule rather than the exception. It's really gotten bad as far as the AAU goes in terms of that. And again, I'm not trying to pretend all high school coaches are perfect, and in no way am I trying to pretend all AAU coaches are bad. But I think that's one of the big challenges that you have is that the recruiting period the NCAA allows really caters to the non-high school coaches. And I will say this, it wouldn't make my job easier if you got rid of AAU in some ways because then I'd have to field all the college coaches. So I'm not in any way saying that we should control it. Um, But the idea being is I think the influences that have come – where so much money is exchanging hands that's well before, that has nothing to do with the college coach, that has nothing to do with the high school player. That, but in, unless you have strong parents, I think it's easy for a kid to become corrupted and, and a kid to think, well, it's all about me. It's all about what I want to do. It's all about, uh, it's not about the team. And uh, I actually, Scotty made a joke about uh, that he, people gave him a hard time. I actually really admire Scotty that, he was, um, he was on, a, on a team where, you know, he was the best player probably from his sophomore year on, and I think he really did a great job of taking that team and building it into a national contender through his three years. And I think there's something special about that where kids make a decision, they go to a school, and they stay there. Um, I'm amazed, and I think, again, this is the influence of, of corporate, I think, in a lot of ways, where kids will change high school. And Scotty knows guys he probably played AAU with four, five, six times. I mean, I, I, I know guys have changed high school five times. And it, it's just unfortunate because I think, um, again, the money is such a factor. And I, I remember back, I'm sure Ruth can remember this, but 10 years ago if, if you were on a high school team or an AAU team and you got one pair of shoes, you were excited. Wow, we got one pair. Now if you give, you know, if your team gets only one pair of shoes, they look at you and say, Coach, you know, what's going on? And, uh, again, not that that's everything, but I think it starts to change the culture of the kids. And I can tell you this, they have a lot tougher road right now because of those influences that come. I can tell you this right now, we're in the middle of our high school season. We have one player, his name's uh, Jason Clark. He's a sophomore, and he's a tremendously talented player for us. I have at least 12 AAU coaches that are trying to get him to play for him. He gets called every single night, and he hasn't even hit the college recruiting process yet. So, again, I think that's a challenge that probably doesn't get talked about quite as much because it's obviously um, not as much under the NCAA's purview. But it could be, I think, if the NCAA were to say, hey, we're going we're gonna to stop the summer recruiting, make it go to the high school coaches. And then people that wanted to play AAU, they would do it for the reasons of, hey, I want to work with kids, not to influence where they're going to colleges. And I think that would be really important. Thank you. Our next speaker is Dan Wetzel who is a columnist for Yahoo.com, but he's one of the top basketball writers in the country, both uh, on the Internet and in the print press, and it also uh, you can see uh, the Glory Road in your local theater, so that's the only plug I'll give you there, Dan. But <laughs> nevertheless, he's, he is our next speaker. Well, in terms of uh, college recruiting, uh, no college ever recruited me to do anything. I... Uh, <laughs> They actually prefer I stay off campus these days. Um, I, did, I wrote one of the books I wrote was with Jerry Tarkanian, who knows a little bit about uh, recruiting rules. And uh, he had a line in the book that said, uh, nine out of ten major college teams break the rules, the other one's in last place. Uh, it's a fairly amusing line, but I think it, uh, it also may be more accurate than you think. It's currently 113 schools on NCA probation. Uh, in major conferences, 
the uh, violations are extensive. Since 99, there's been eight major violation convictions in the Big Ten. Since 2002, five Big 12 schools have been hit with major violations. One more is under investigation. In the SEC, since 2002, seven schools have been put on major NCA violations. Two more are currently under investigations. The rules are not being followed at the college level if they don't have to be and if you're in that extent. And I think a part of that is the system uh, that Joe mentioned that's been, been created. There's three different groups that will uh, cheat the rules. Uh, there's the college coaches and boosters that you guys employ. There are the shoe companies that are looking to gain access to future endorsements. Those are corporate partners with you. And there's pro sports agents looking for clients. The NCAA worked very hard to uh, pass laws around the country that make it illegal for sports agents to pay players. It's not illegal, though, for coaches, boosters, or your corporate shoe partners. Uh, what has happened is the summer basketball coach has become increasingly powerful as the point person uh, for those three groups to get at the commodity that is the student athlete, and that's what Joe was talking about. The heavy recruitment of 13, 12, 11-year-old kids that can play uh, is extensive because they're very, very valuable. Uh, if you run a prominent traveling basketball team in this country, and we're talking scores of them, you do not have a job other than running that program. It is extremely lucrative to run a summer basketball team. Almost every summer basketball team has set up a charitable foundation to fund itself, and the donations are not from bake sales and car, car washes, but from coaches, boosters, shoe companies, and agents. You donate as a tax write-off, it goes in on a fi uh, 501c3, and it is impossible for anyone because of the tax laws to figure out who is donating to that program. There is a ton of money in this. That's why they fly all over and they do all the things Joe was talking about. Also been created, some of these guys have created these fly-by-night storefront schools around the country that are not really high schools, but they can get you your transcript. They can get you your SAT score. They can get you your core requirements. Some of these schools are a joke. There's 10 kids in the whole school. They all play basketball. Uh, there's football ki kids playing football. They can get, get their transcript together in two weeks if you pay. Uh, you, you pay four or $500, or you, you indebt yourself to these coaches who will then determine where you're going to college or what agent you go with. Or in some cases, you actually have to work for them. There's a school in Troy, New York. Uh, to make up for the tuition, the kids have to go out, and uh, they have to get up about 4 in the morning and bake goods, muffins and uh, donuts and things, and then they go out on the side of the road and sell them. True story. been going on for years. That's how they pay them back. Uh, this is what the system has created. Uh, I don't think the NCA is really interested in tackling this issue because it isn't new, and it's been around a long time. And I think part of the blame here has to go to the NCA leadership. Uh, people in here are familiar with maybe how the NCA works. There's two main governing bodies that decide everything. One is the uh, Management Council. There's 25 Division I representatives on the Management Council. Five of, the, five of those representatives come from schools currently on NCA probation. 
four others come from conference offices that have had extensive probation, including the SEC, which I mentioned has seven convictions in four years. One of those is from the University of Minnesota that had probably the worst academic scandal of all time in 2000, uh, where the tutors were writing all of the papers for the kids. Nobody went to school. The people who are breaking the rules are writing the rules. The most powerful group is the board of directors. That's the university presidents. Twelve university presidents from Division 1A. Four of them represent schools convicted of major violations. The cheaters are running the show. My favorite is the University of Georgia. In a 26-year period, has been nailed six separate times for NCA violations. That's not just a mistake. That is a corruption to the core at that university. The first three of those violations came from the football coach at the time, Vince Dooley. When Vince Dooley retired, he became the athletic director. The schools don't care. And what gets, they've created a system, they've allowed a system to foster, and they've ha forced their coaches to work in this system that ends up hurting these kids because it places false values on them, it puts the kids out for sale, and the kids that aren't as fortunate as these two to have fathers here, and that's the, a lot of kids, the ones that are really at risk, get in trouble with this system because they have to follow along. They end up at six different high schools. Nobody with good parents goes to six different high schools. Those are the kids at risk here. I think that's what you got to focus on. All right. I won't respond to some of that, and we'll just go to the next speaker. <laughs> but I'm sure we'll have some questions later. Peter Roby, who uh, was, is a graduate of Dartmouth, coached for six years as the head basketball coach at Harvard, and uh, worked for 11 years uh, with Reebok, but is now the director at Northeastern University's Center for the Study of Sport and Society and he's been director of that center for some time, whose mission is to increase the awareness of sport and its relations to society and issues that are related to both. So, Peter Roby, we're glad to have you. Thank you, and it's a pleasure to be here. It's, a, it's an honor to be in front of the, the panel, uh, given my personal background and my uh, commitment to some of these issues, so I'm, I'm delighted to be here. Uh, before I get started with my comments, let me just... Uh, make a comment about the last uh, panel and the MVP program that everybody was talking about. It's a, uh, a great sense of pride for me to say that that program originated at the Center for the Study of Sport and Society and continues today. Uh, it's a 13, 14-year program. We've been on over 100 college campuses. And uh, despite some of what we talked about with regard to the SEC, I should give credit to the SEC for having the vision and the commitment to uh, their student-athletes to be the first conference to implement the uh, MVP program across the board in all 12 schools, men's and women's basketball, men's and women's track and field, baseball, softball, and football. The uh, question that was asked by Hodding Carter with regard to, well, what else can we do, is I don't think we need to restrict these things to the athletic department nor to just the students. But programs like this that raise awareness and give people options about how to deal with the issues of uh, sexual assault and violence uh, have to be permeated throughout the culture of the community on the college campus so that faculty and staff, administrators, everybody that comes in contact with young people should be going through the program so that, that the culture gets reinforced every time a student athlete or a student in general comes in contact with an adult who's supposed to have their best interests in mind. And so that's what we would suggest in terms of one of the solutions. Uh, we also, that program is a mixed-gendered 
mixed race program of uh, trainers that go out and deliver that training on campuses, and they're all former college athletes. Uh, so in terms of being able to talk specifically about issues and giving kids options, we're really proud of what we've done there. Anyway, good morning and thank you for inviting me to participate in this important process. Today is especially significant for me personally because of my family background and my personal feelings about today's topic. I'm the first in my family to graduate from college. My parents never attended high school, and I've spent most of my life trying to promote the importance of perspective and values in our lives. To be here today in the presence of so many distinguished individuals speaking on a topic of such importance is an honor for me. My comments today highlight the need for perspective and the importance of leadership if we hope to change the culture around recruiting. Recruiting irregularities and excesses has been a part of intercollegiate athletics from its beginnings. Initially, it was thought that ego and pride were the prevailing influences affecting recruiting at that time. While they remain part of the problem with recruiting today, they have been overtaken by the influence of money on the athletic landscape. Shoe companies looking to influence scores of youngsters to buy their products Summer coaches luring prospects to play for their particular team by waving free gear, trips to distant locations to play against the best, and college coaches chasing the dream of NCAA glory and the financial windfall that usually accompanies it have contributed to the crisis in recruiting. It has gotten so bad that athletes choose which high school to attend based on which shoe company's products their teams wear, even if it means moving hundreds of miles from home and finding other guardians to live with in the district of that particular school. All of this contributes to an erosion of values and a loss of perspective on the role of athletics in society. The sense of entitlement that athletes grow up with and influences the decision that coaches, athletic directors, and college presidents make in an effort to win. College coaches now make as much as $3 million per season. BCS conferences generate millions of dollars from bowl games, conference championships, and television deals while the athletes continue to miss more class and fall farther behind their classmates in the classroom. The multi-sport athlete is disappearing from the sports landscape because youth coaches have convinced this generation of promising athletes that they can't be the best and get a college scholarship unless they play that particular sport year-round. And parents have bought this line of reasoning as well. Much of what's wrong with recruiting is being done by adults who claim to have the athlete's best interests in mind, when in fact the vast number of those individuals have their own self-interest in mind. So the question is, given the history of professionalism that has plagued collegiate athletics as far back as the Carnegie Report in 1929, can we change the culture of collegiate recruiting? With money, media, and marketing influencing almost every decision made in sports today, from which nights of the week games are played, to hiring and firing coaches, to the Pop Warner football championships on ESPN at Disney World in Orlando, do we have the collective courage and will to change the culture? If so, how can we fix it? Do we have the courage to fix it? Leaders like Nelson Mandela, Dr. King, Billie Jean King, Mother Teresa, and Birch Bayh each had a vision for a better way and the, and the courage of their convictions and consistency of their actions to bring about change. The type of leadership required is leaderful leadership that calls for each of us to lead from where we sit, 
It challenges the notion that only the gifted few can lead and instead suggests that each of us has the capacity to lead by our own actions and convictions. Each college president must have the courage of their convictions to withstand the pressure from donors, boosters, the media, marketing interests, and maintain their commitment to academic integrity and the proper role of athletics of higher, on higher education, regardless of whether their biggest rival does the same. Leading from any seat means employees at, at the shoe companies recognize the damage being done to thousands of young athletes' values each, each time they provide free gear and money to another summer basketball team. I had to make that decision myself while at Reebok, and it is not a coincidence that the company hardly mentioned in Dan's book, Sole Influence, is Reebok. During my time at Reebok, I refused to contribute to the culture plaguing summer basketball and refused to sponsor any summer teams. My convictions were challenged when Reebok's senior leadership team agreed to uh, asked me to agree with their decision to hire Sonny Vaccaro to run our grassroots basketball operation. I threatened to resign if they hired him because I didn't agree with his philosophy. They didn't hire him then, but they did hire him after I left the company in 2002. The NCAA should consider running their own recruiting and evaluation camps and restricting off-campus evaluation to only these camps and in, in actual in-season games of the athletes and sanction summer leagues that are monitored by the state high school associations. This will ensure that the best interests of the athletes are in the hands of nurturing adults who actually have accountability to their athletic director, principal, superintendent, and state association. Val Ackerman and, and Len Elmore, like me, are products of a time when the summer league was where we spent most of our time. Beside running the city or town where we grew up playing against the best local talent in parks and in pickup games, the summer leagues was the place to see and be seen. Today, summer leagues are irrelevant. High school coaches have gotten squeezed out of the recruiting equation because of the emphasis placed on summer travel team participation. So much of a young person's values de development takes place in high school, and as such, these young athletes need to be around adults that care about them for more than their athletic ability and who will tell them when their behavior is unacceptable and needs to change. With summer travel teams, the coaches of these teams are, wor are so worried about losing their players to others, they have no incentive to discipline their athletes when their behavior warrants it. Like most solutions to major problems, they call for collaborative action. College presidents, state high school associations, parents, athletes, shoe companies, and the NCAA must work together to do what's in the best interest of the young athletes in their charge. I hope that my appearance here today will help bring about the changes necessary to return integrity to the recruiting process by placing in the hands of adults most concerned with the best interests of young people involved. Let me just give you a couple of examples of some of the things that we've talked about today. Uh, given the attention that the athletes endure prior to matriculating, like we've heard with the three uh, young student athletes that, that spoke before us, it's not surprising that the transition issues uh, and keeping things in perspective is so hard. Uh, we build them up on such a pedestal, we tell them how great they are, and then they come into school and they're freshmen and they're asked to be a normal student. It's just not going to happen without some, uh, some attention being paid to that. One thing I will say about Ruth's comment about being from a small town and uh, maybe not having gotten the uh, recognition, recruiting is so sophisticated and has been for a long time that there's very few people that fall through the cracks. And if, uh, if you need any example... All you have to think about is Jerry West. Jerry West came from a small town in West Virginia, 
that nobody would have given you a spit for that town unless Jerry West came from there or the people that came from there. And yet they found Jerry West, and I think we all would agree he went, went on to have a pretty damn good career, and um, people still talk about him. Uh, so is there a connection between Notre Dame firing Tyrone Willingham, even though they admit in the, in the press conference that between Sunday and Friday they'd, he did everything that they'd ever asked him to do, but he just fell short on Saturday? Is there then a coincidence that Notre Dame ends up playing Stanford in the last game of the season, and if they win that game, they get a $14 million payout for a BCS spot? That's all you need to know about why Ty Willingham was fired at Notre Dame. And that has nothing to do with whether Charlie Weiss was worthy or not. I don't know Charlie Weiss, but he's a hell of a football coach. So this isn't an indictment on Charlie Weiss, but it is an indictment about the lack of leadership that Notre Dame showed in the Tyrone Willingham situation. St. Bonaventure recruiting irregularities that led to the death of their board of director chairman. He committed suicide because of it. Uh, the last thing I'll talk about is one that really struck me the most. When I was at Reebok, one of the things that I did decide to do was to sponsor the McDonald's All-American game because I didn't want to get into the whole uh, influence of the AAU and the summer basketball thing, and I thought that at least with the McDonald's game, we still had the control with the high school coaches. Ronald Curry from this area in Virginia was going to play in the McDonald's game and also at the time still playing in the uh, Capital Classic that was held here in, uh, in Washington, D.C. I came from the airport, got picked up, and on the talk radio show, the people talking about Ronald Curry were saying that one of the reasons that Ronald Curry had switched his decision to uh, go to Virginia and instead go to North Carolina was because Virginia was wearing Reebok product and North Carolina was wearing Nike. I happened to see Ronald Curry in the lounge uh, here for the Capitol Classic, and I related that story to him, and I told him how much it broke my heart. Because, you know, Ronald Curry was a legitimate student-athlete with an over-three-point average, was a serious student. He just happened to be a wonderful athlete. And for anybody to suggest that we would throw away our future based on what shoe we were wearing was a uh, personal affront to me. Now, I was representing a shoe company, and I told him that I was offended by the comment on the radio. Now, Ronald Curry looked at me like I had three heads because nobody from a shoe company was talking to him that way. That's the kind of leadership that I was trying to show then. It's the kind of leadership I'm trying to show now. It's the kind of leadership that I hope we'll all show going forward. Thanks very much. Thank you. And thank all of you uh, presenters for uh, your comments. And now I'd like to uh, introduce the panel from the Knight Commission, have each of them, if they would, as we go down and then back around, uh, introduce themselves, and then we'll take, begin to take their questions. I'm Janet Hill, and I am not an athlete, but I am the wife of Calvin Hill, and the, um, my little blurb didn't say that I also have a son who is uh, in the NBA, Grant Hill. I'm Mike Adams, and I'm president of the University of Georgia, and I may have more to say about that later. <laughs> I knew you would, Mike. I knew you would. My name is Len Elmore. Um, I'm an attorney in New York City. I'm also an, a basketball analyst for ESPN. Uh, I played a little bit of basketball in this area as well. Uh, I'm Jerry Porras. I'm an emeritus professor from Stanford University, and I was the ex-faculty representative there for 13 years. 
I'm Andrea Fisher-Newman. I'm the chairwoman of the Board of Regents at the University of Michigan. I'm Alberto Ibarguin. I'm president of the John S. and James L. Knight Foundation and an ex-officio member of this commission. I'm, I'm Val Ackerman. Uh, I was up until last year the president of the Women's National Basketball Association. I'm currently the president of USA Basketball. All right. So, Janet, if you would start us off. Yes, uh, I have a comment for the parents here. Congratulations, first of all, for being parents. And uh, let me, let me uh, urge you, and your mother also, if you would give her the message, Ruth, that, uh, that you don't forsake your role as parents because your kids are going to still need advice. I'm thinking of some advice to give my son in a few minutes, and he's 33. Um, I've <laughs> been writing notes down. Um, not to ever exchange your position as parents uh, for money because there's an, a temptation to do that. And I, I see some disastrous results amongst fellow parents in, 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 uh, in the NBA. And um, keep your day job, whatever it is. Don't quit it, because uh, if your, your children are in professional sports, uh, because it'll keep you in a position to uh, have perspective uh, when you want to uh, exert, again, your responsibilities as a parent. On this AAU business, and my son benefited from his time with AAU, as I think you, Scotty, have said you've done, and some players, Joe, uh, that you've had have also. But is not this uh, something that could be controlled by simply saying that uh, if the um, NCAA were to do this, that no player could be recruited to an NCAA-sanctioned school um, that had played AAU? It would disappear then. There would be no... Am I right or am I wrong? I don't know. Uh, I'll start with Joe. Maybe you can. I mean, I, yeah, uh, I, I would think that I would be very put surprised. Put them out of business, in other words. Yeah, I'm sorry? Put them out of business, in other words. Yeah, I, I mean, I obviously could, and I, and I would say this. I mean, you know, I don't think AAU is, is 100% bad, so I don't want to no. propose that. Um, but I think if you took a drastic stand, maybe some simpler, that not if you played AAU, but if you, the NCAA would not allow their coaches to evaluate during the summer period, I think you would find all of a sudden that could change as well. I think AAU does have good roots to it. Um, it's obviously been around for a long time. I think more importantly, uh, Ms. Hill, is, is the fact that it, it's gone from there's so much corporate money that goes into it uh, from, the, from different um, areas, from the shoe companies. And what happens is, is those shoe companies, and I, I just remember seeing this, I don't have knowledge of each one, but when Matt Doherty was let go at North Carolina, it talked about his overall compensation, well, $500,000 of his annual compensation came from Nike. Well, so what's going to happen right now is the NCAA, can they bite the hand that feeds them? It, it, it pays their coaches, and then it's also running the AAU circuit in the summer. So in a lot of ways, you're, 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 the NCAA would but have to But it's still going to pay step. the coaches at the college level. Uh, if, if you got rid of AAU today, what would happen? Um, I realize coaches would have to work a little harder because now they have to travel around to every school instead of seeing individuals at one location. Well, I, what I, else would happen? I, I know one of the big arguments from the NCAA when this has come up before has been the fact that they want the smaller schools to be able to compete with the larger schools. So, for example, I was an assistant coach when I first got out of college at Furman University. Our budget was paled in comparison to, let's say, the University of Maryland, obviously an ACC school. So we couldn't afford on our budget to fly around the country and see players at their individual high school. 
But the reality is, is Furman University is not beating Maryland University still to this day. And, and no offense to either school, but the reality is, is the bigger schools are still going to have the bigger budgets. And regardless of what you do, they're going to win the top recruits because of the exposure of that conference. So to me, you know, the argument, well, we're helping the smaller schools, um, it goes back to one thing. It goes back to money. Is it, it, everything's about money. When you look at it, is money is the driving force rather, rather than education. And education should be the driving force. And I think what ends up happening, and I, I know Pete's comments there, what we ended up seeing is that these kids are forced to specialize. And these kids also, for example, the NCAA two years ago did not sanction the local summer league in Washington, D.C., where they were coached by their high school coaches. Yet all these different AAU events are sanctioned. Well, because the guy who ran the league, he was just a high school coach that didn't know any better. And so, again, the only difference is if it's an NCAA-sanctioned event, they send the kids in for one half-an-hour period to watch an NCAA film one to do well in school. And one of the reasons I know this is because it was discussed. Um, it was discussed at the so-called Nike Summit. And, Dan, I know you've written uh, a couple of opinion pieces about that. But in the end... You know, when we're looking for ways to improve this situation, and let me agree that coaches, boosters, shoe companies, agents, the NBA, uh, the NCAA, they're all, uh, you know, co complicit in some of the problems, whether intentionally or from lack of attention. But in the end, I, I think it does us no good to, you know, essentially be so accusatory and particularly using older you know, violations and making, um, you know, pretty stark statements uh, without looking at balance. And let me say that, you know, we're, we're talking about violations. And, Dan, you mentioned that, you know, there, there haven't been any real uh, – there hasn't been any real attention towards enforcement that the cheaters are making the rules. But then you talk about the number of violations that have occurred. Somebody's catching them. So it, it does, it's incongruent. Um, the, the fact is, you know, we have to consider, again, academic reform. We have to talk about enforcement issues. There, there seems to be a push towards that as we continue to put this out in the, um, in, in the, public, uh, in the public view. And I've always said, you know, that's the best antiseptic is sunlight. But in the end, I think, you know, as, a, as an individual who has been a, a college basketball player, I've been a, a pro basketball player, I am an analyst for ESPN, and I, I'm nobody's apologist. You know, I have criticized the NCAA shoe companies. I've criticized the NBA and even the hand that feeds me, ESPN, on a number of occasions. But I've also been involved in high-level meetings that these issues have been discussed. And, again, I'll go back, Dan, to your situation when you wrote this article, uh, No Shoe Strings Attached, which I thought was wholly unfair. You can attack Nike all you want, but I was there. So was David Stern, so was Miles Brand. That could have been the first, and I probably was, the first instance where the NBA and the NCAA actually had a dialogue. That was something positive that came out of it. Every issue that, that Peter Roby brought up with regard to coaching certification, uh, with regard to NCAA sanctioning summer evaluations and all <coughs> these things were discussed. There are moves in place right now to look at sanctioning all travel team coaches. If you're not going to be sanctioned, you can't compete. I mean, that's the beginning because we have a lot of people who aren't capable and who are unsavory that are involved here. But these things never happen unless these meetings occur. And, again, I'm not here to, to bow at the throne of Phil Knight. But in the end, Nike did something that was positive. And I think 
to criticize the summit without being there. And the last I checked, you weren't invited. Without being there and prior to the meeting, I think does the whole issue a disservice. The, the whole thing is about balanced reporting. Yes, we have to demonstrate the problems, but we also have to take a look at potential solutions. And I think some of your writings, and I don't know, maybe they're designed to sell books, but some of your writings are about as balanced as Fox News. So in the end, um, you know, my point essentially comes down to the fact that we do have some problems out here. And I think that where we look at uh, the AAU phenomenon or the traveling team phenomenon. I think it comes down to us digging deeper, starting to look at a grassroots level and starting to certify coaches, starting to bring high school coaches back to the level of influence that they were in when I played college basketball in the late, uh, you know, high school basketball in the late 60s. I think, again, as, as Mrs. Hill mentioned, parents and caregivers have to be placed at the forefront and they can't be uh, dissuaded by the offers of money and, and other things of, of, uh, of value. One of the reasons, I was a sports agent for five years. I thought that the reason that I'd get involved was because I could help guys. I read about the horror stories. I played with guys who went from riches, from rags to riches back to rags. And I thought that the influence that we could have with self-reliance, community responsibility would resonate. And the reason I got out is because I couldn't compete with the money that was flowing with the unsavoriness, not only of sports agents, but also with the, the people who were essentially in charge of the care of, of these young people. And I wasn't about to stoop to conquer. So I was no longer in that business, and I know that it continues today. But we've got to continue to air the problems. That's why I think that it's so important that uh, the young, the student athletes, those who've experienced most recently, Ruth, and others, continue to speak about your experiences to make sure that people can hear what's going on because for so long it's been under a rock. But we also need to talk about the things like academic reform that ultimately will help young people not only have expectations of themselves and understand that there are expectations for them, but also it's going to allow them to meet those expectations. It's going to keep people in school. It's going to have people recognize that there's more to this experience of sports than just playing on the next level. So what I, any, if you're going to do anything, I urge you to continue to, to get to programs such as these and let people know what's going on. Let me comment about what it's like as a parent with a child that is faced with the AAU travel challenge and a high school coach. Pam okay. and I decided that Coach Hall, our high school coach, would be the interface with uh, the college recruiting process. We had, we, Scott played for Boo Williams out of uh, the Tidewater area for two summers. When a coach was interested in, made, expressed interest in Scott to Boo Williams, the deal that we had with him, the agreement was that he would pass them and the information to Coach Hall. So Coach Hall really took, he's, and, and we think a lot of him, he helped Scott and us make the right decision for where Scott should play. He was Scott's high school coach, and he's our friend for four years. And it goes back to what Coach Wooten says. If something's happened, it's because either parents or something's happened where part of this is turned over to the <clears throat> AAU coach. And I would tell you, sir, that they're not all like, has been characterized. Uh, I, I'll use some names. Uh, Boo Williams, uh, Coach John Mastranzi out of Chicago, the AAU coach for D. Brown. They are concerned about the players as individuals, not the 
seedy sides of things. Now, that's, I agree that there were others. We had to tell one AAU coach, no longer, I had to tell him, stop representing yourself as Scott's coach. That wasn't Boo Williams, these others I mentioned. So you have these guys that try to insert themselves in, to be the interface to whoever. And that's what ought to be stopped. If there's a way to stop something, legislation or otherwise, if you could stop that, then you would see that the, call, the high school coach would have their rightful place, I believe. Would you believe if they certified these coaches, I mean, really put them through some kind of rigor that is going to determine it? One, they know what the heck they're doing on the basketball court, but also that they have the capabilities maybe along the lines of from a guidance standpoint. I know <clears throat> Boo Williams. I've known Boo Williams for a long time. He would be the prototype yes. of someone like that. Do you think that that might help? that if you're not certified, you can't run one of those teams. And if you do have one of those teams, you're not going to play in any tournaments. So what's the use of running them? Right. And we heard that would be good. And also some kind of check on maybe just financial check on their kind of background. We heard that if such and such a AAU coach could get Scott on his team, he would get uh, XYZ school uh, shoe sponsorship. And so this is not talking about college. We're talking about what a, a given AAU coach can get a kid to get on their team. This recruiting, our experience with the colleges has been fine through the last four years. The seedy side of the part comes from dealing with uh, these other kinds of AAU recruiting. Mr. Rowe, would you want to add anything to that? Um, <clears throat> one thing that I see uh, is... I guess I wish Mr. Rowe. <laughs> <laughs> I was really asking your dad, but oh. that's fine. You can hey. comment, and then we'll let him comment. Not a lot of talking on right? <laughs> Uh, go ahead. Next couple of years, I'm sure he'll speak for me. <laughs> well, a little bit about the AEU, because Myron also played basketball, and he participated quite a bit. And we had to reach a point where we had to make a decision whether he was going to play basketball, because I think that summer he would have played something like 70 games. And, I mean, they were going all over the country. And to be frank with you, I think somebody said that, I'm not about to advocate my position as parents, you know. Not today, not tomorrow. Yeah. And he decided, you know, he's going to play his football, he's going to do the things. He would play basketball, but just at a school rather than the AAU. Because also we saw some things there. And I could tell you, I've seen some people who I don't think should be involved in basketball because I think they direct the kids, just as was said around here, to either a very a particular high school or they try to direct them to a particular college. Okay. But as far as Myron's uh, recruitment for football is concerned, I mean, I think one of the things we did and we made it very clear to most people is that, you know, we're straight lace. We, in fact, what we did, I sat down with him. We came up with something like that, about 80, I think, different criterias. We just listed these things and we listed them. And when we go to schools, we go through all of those items. When we come back from the meetings, we sit around the table. We, everybody who went to the visit had their input. And, you know, we made some decisions. You know, and we didn't make final decisions, but you, you could almost eliminate certain people at a particular time. But as far as the AU is concerned, I really don't have too much to offer in that except what okay. I've said. <laughs> Young Mr. Rowe, do you want to add anything to oh. that now? <laughs> <laughs> well, my, can I say something to... Oh, are you going to go? Go ahead. Yes, he is. Go ahead. 
Yes. I thought you said no. I'm sorry. <laughs> no, well, um, you know, my father is exactly right as far as the basketball is concerned. <clears throat> the amount of uh, the amount of time that's consumed with basketball is just ridiculous. I have some friends that, that play uh, AU basketball, and, and the amount of time they devote to practicing, to games, uh, to travel is, is almost unreal, and it's completely different than football. I mean, football, you go, like I said, you go to a combine, you go to a camp, you may visit a school, but it doesn't dominate your summer. It doesn't dominate uh, your time. You still get to be a kid in the end. You still get to enjoy you know, your, your summer where you're seeing your friends or, you know, your, your friends from back home. And I think that's really important. I think that's something that goes lost um, within this recruiting process a lot. You know, there's so much emphasis put on being such a good football player, being a good basketball player, or, you know, getting this kind of deal or, or, or getting on this magazine or this kind of ranking. You sometimes forget that, you know, you just want to go to movies or go to boardwalk and just relax and have fun. Mm -hmm. And uh, And I think that that just, you know, for me, my parents, you know, they were able to control that situation for me, and I was able to be a normal kid and not just be surrounded by, you know, just negative influences and, and things that took took away from uh, just enjoying myself. Right, thank you. Can and I we, can I just say one thing to, to Mr. Elmore? Uh, I would have loved to go on that Nike summit. They didn't let any reporters go. Actually, yeah. there were a couple. But well, they wouldn't let they wouldn't let any let you, I knew. You know that. <laughs> my right. my point is that. Uh, the reason I write about it is because very few people do, and I've seen in 10 years hundreds, at least 100 kids get chewed up in this thing and get their whole deal messed up because of bad advice. I've seen shoe executives introduce players to sports agents. Then it gets discovered that they know a sports agent and they lose their college eligibility, and the rest of the system moves on. And if I'm too hard on Phil Knight, I'm too hard on Phil Knight. No, that's not what I'm saying. What I was saying was that I was invited to that. There are a number of people. I mentioned Boo Williams. There were people from USA there were Basketball, terrific people others. There. Nobody connected with Nike, but all stakeholders in the game. And, you know, reading this, and this was prior to the meeting, it just makes it seem like we went there for nothing, that we were puppets. And, in effect, we did have meaningful input. And, in effect, there have been some things that have come out of it, including ideas for the certification of, of summer coaches as well as NCAA potentially sanctioning only their kind of youth basketball uh, programs in the summertime. These are important things. And this came out of a Nike summit. Now, I, I agree with you. Let's, I have criticized Nike in the past, and I've got good friends there. Uh, at least I used to have good friends. Well, let's, let's leave the Nike tournament for a minute, okay? <laughs> yeah, I, uh, I want to take a couple minutes to be defensive and, uh, and, and then try and get this back uh, on the kids, which is where I, I, think, it, where uh, I think it needs to be. Uh, uh, Mr. Wetzel is certainly uh, uh, welcome to his opinion. And frankly, Dan, I, I agree probably uh, as much as anybody here with a good bit of what you've written. I do think uh, it's fair, as Lynn said, to be careful about how broad a brush uh, you paint with uh, sometimes. Uh, I'm not going to try and talk about the last 25 years, but uh, I've got the scars to show for changing some of the people that, uh, uh, that we've changed. Uh, we have had in my 10-year period there one unfortunate uh, event. Um, but when you've got 10,000 employees and a, and a com immediate community of 50,000, you're going to have uh, some of that. Uh, I frankly think the fact that somebody like Gerald, Ford, uh, Gerald uh, Turner from SMU, uh, which 
uh, has had problems in the past, or Mary Sue Coleman at Michigan, uh, have gone to the NCAA board uh, as I have, and are the ones in there pitching. Uh, I frankly think that's a plus uh, rather than a minus. Uh, I think there are a number of institutional presidents today uh, who are making those kind of efforts, having seen the need uh, for some change that some of us uh, have seen on campuses. And uh, I guess for the record, uh, the fact that we've had more NCAA top eight athletes the last 10 years than any other institution in the country, more academic women of the year than any other institution in the country, and we're top five in uh, academic All-Americans, uh, would indicate that some things have been done uh, correctly. I guess I would also say in uh, Mark Richt and Dennis Felton and UAD, Damon Evans, all of whom I hired, uh, I, I don't think any of them are uh, perfect, but I think uh, their ethical base and the promise for the future is pretty strong. Uh, I also appreciate what Mr. Roby said. Uh, I don't believe uh, uh, there's any conference in the country, and for full disclosure, uh, I'm currently chairman of the SEC as well, uh, taking more seriously the need for reform right now uh, than the SEC is under Mike Slive's leadership. I saw Greg Sankey here uh, earlier today. So uh, we, can, we can either curse the darkness or we can uh, get involved and try and uh, make improvements. And I think uh, that's what most of us need uh, uh, to be doing. And I think it's what many of us are doing. Uh, I do want to pose one particular question to these three young people. Uh, and I've been intrigued by their um, testimony today. It's not different from that which I hear uh, from uh, others that we recruit throughout the year. But having been through this process, two of you very recently, and one not, frankly, too long ago, if you were going to make suggestions to us on what changes in the process you think need to be made, I'd be interested in, from a recruiting standpoint, how you would like to see things changed. Myron, why don't we start with you? Okay. Um, I have two suggestions, really. And the first, you know, being a football athlete, um, as I mentioned before, the websites, rivals.com, scout.com, the amount of access they have to the student-athletes just is, is amazing. I mean, they can call you on your cell phone seven times a night, and sometimes it's from the same, same site, you know, the same people. And you're just like, man, didn't I just give you an interview like two seconds ago? Like, why are you calling me again? And it, that can get overwhelming, and that can be frustrating at times. The writers for these sites are sometimes not real journalists. I mean, uh, you, you, you give them a comment or a quote, and they may construe it in a way that makes you look favorably at you know, a certain school, something that you didn't want to get out there, um, you know, or maybe just start a rumor that gets around recruiting circles and could, in the, in the end, hurt you somehow. And, um, and I think that's, you know, that's very unfortunate. Um, and these recruiting sites can call um, without the permission of the parents. I mean, they can call you directly, a 16, 17-year-old kid, 18-year-old kid, and just talk to you and get your information and, and put it out there on the World Wide Web, on the Internet. And uh, I think that could be dangerous uh, very, uh, you know, so many times. I also think that um, regulating the fact that uh, you have recruiting analysts and recruiting gurus um, and regulating what they can do um, and how they can interact with the student-athletes is, is something very important. For instance, I've had a personal experience with one uh, gentleman by the name of Tom Lemming. Um, he is you know, a very prominent figure in, in the recruiting circles. And <clears throat> Mr. Lemming uh, had ranked me the number one high school overall prospect in the country beginning my senior year. And, uh, and he had told me that, you know, Myron, you're, you're considering Florida State and Oklahoma 
um, and, and you have a 4.0 GPA, you're 13 4 on your boards, you're very smart, you know, why won't you consider a school like Stanford or Princeton or Notre Dame that has a good combination of both? And I just thought, to me, that stepped out of the, the boundaries of like being an analyst, you know, and reporting on oh, what school I visited, not telling me what school I should go to or what school I should think about. That's his job and her job, you know, that, that, or my high school coach's job or my close friends, not somebody who I really don't know or not somebody who writes about, you know, certain things. Um, they step out of that boundary. For instance, he told me that if I had kept, you know, a certain school on my list that, you know, the all U.S. Army All-American game, which was played on NBC, that I'd be featured in that game, that I'd win MVP if I had an average game. Not, I mean, before the game started, I'd win MVP. I knew that. And I said, well, you know, I want to do the way I want to do it. I want to have the roles involved in this, not the roles and time limit. You know, this is going to be my process, and I'm going to take control of it. So I think, um, and ultimately, if the NCAA or an foundation can somehow control the amount of access that the recruiting websites have, Rivals.com, Scout.com, to the athletes, because they limit how much times college coaches can call. You know, they have a dead periods. You know, these guys should too, because in a way, I mean, they're sort of connected with the universities. Um, and also uh, regulate uh, the amount of access that these recruiting analysts and so-called gurus have to athletes as well. Ruth, thank you. Well, I mean, obviously I agree with what he said. Um, probably the only other thing that I would say is I think as a high school student, it's really hard to make that decision when you can't talk to somebody who's already been through the process. Um, and I understand why you wouldn't be able to talk to another athlete because that's you're going to be swayed in their judgment to the university you've been to. But I think that anytime you're trying to step out, um, you really want to ask somebody who's been through that, um, the ups and downs, um, why you made a decision, the, the, the tough things you go through. I, I see a lot of kids transfer just because they, they probably weren't prepared or, or a lot of things they didn't know. And, and I just wonder if there's any way that there can be um, – something available for these kids to talk to other athletes who have recently gone through that process so they can help them in a way that they're not swaying them towards a certain university. Thank you, Scott. Um, you I, guess, I guess for me, um, there's like, there's so many rules about when you can call, when you can, it's just a, a packet of, you know, a checklist when you can do things and to, and to, you know, to, to put that on somebody that that's 16, 17 years old, um, telling them you know what you can and cannot do when you're trying to make an important decision for yourself and for your future, um, as far as you know how you want to get to know you know um, the coaches and, and what they're about. Um, I think if if um, I mean I think it's better to if you can. I think that's I think that's separating. The um the kids from the coaches more instead of bringing them together and, and making um making them make a better decision for you know what they you know what they want to do in their in their life because I mean yeah. sometimes sometimes you when you sometimes I I know for instance uh, a couple of players that have gone to a school that haven't that didn't even really talk to their their um college coach. The, high, the head coach, but was talking to assistant coach, and ended up leaving to go to to go to another school for a head coaching job, and and for that, it, I mean, it's unfortunate, but I mean, at the same time, I think um, there, there there can be something that can be done with that. 
Okay, thank you. All right, uh, Andrew. Before, and before you leave that, before you leave Andrew, that subject, I want to add something. All right. I think one thing that needs to be changed is text messaging. I think uh, coaches are abusing that. I mean, I could tell you, I know in Myron's process, I would even get text messages yeah. every day, not sometimes twice a day. Yeah, I think that will be. And I think that's bad. one area that has been abused. That's on the list. Okay, Andrea and then Val. If you yeah, I, I just wanted to get back to the um, college recruiting more, I think, than what we've been discussing, which All is right. really the high school mm -hmm. recruiting, if, if that's okay. And I have questions for the, the three students also, um, or the once former student, excuse me, and the, the two current students. Um, and let me, there are two different categories, and um, I'll ask them, and if you could just answer both. And the first one is, whether or not you were pressured or felt pressured to make early commitments to a uh, to the um, college or university, if your friends were, um, whether or not it's that you think that's a common practice, and do you think there are benefits to making early verbal commitments? That's the first question, and the second question is negative recruiting. Were you um, involved in negative recruiting? Were, did college um, coaches and whatnot bash other schools or promise other things or, or talk about um, negative influences and allegations about breaking NCAA rules at other institutions? And if they did, how did that impact your final decision? Okay, those are two questions. If you could answer them pretty quickly. <laughs> Scott, why don't we start with you, since we've been going the other way. Um, First one, one, signing early. Is that a benefit or not? Um, not signing early. No. Pressuring to pressuring make an early to commitment. Early. To make an early commitment. Um, I mean, Early verbal. Um, I don't know if it's pressure, but I think once you find a school that, that suits you, is I mean, there's no reason to wait because you can lose out you can lose out on that opportunity. So I think, but on the downside, not for me, because I'm not, you know, that high ranked or whatever, but for others, if you get, if you do commit, like I know from uh, my friends or whatever, if you do commit, you're kind of like off the board and you kind of go below the radar because they have nothing else for you. They have nothing else to talk about. So it's kind of like you keep, you stay on the board just to, you know, keep, you keep, you know, getting the interviews and stuff like that. But once you're off the board, you kind of, you know, go, go under the water and just sit there waiting for, you know, college to come around. And also your other question, I think, about um, schools bashing other, other schools or whatever. Um, yeah, I, it, the recruiting's a game. And any way you can um, put your put your foot in front of the other um, other school, um, they, that's what they're going to do. It's It's not about, you know, being loyal to any other school when it's your school, you know what I'm saying? You 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 do whatever to um, put your school on top. So, Ruth, I would say um, I wanted to commit early just because the recruiting process was so taxing. And once I knew the decision that I made, I didn't feel as much pressure from other schools to to commit early as much as um, once I was sure. I think that takes a lot of pressure off your senior year. And so it's something I wanted to do. And I would agree with what Scotty said about the negative recruiting. Um, there, there are good and bad coaches out there. And I think that for somebody like me, that just reflects on the person I'm talking to. Um, you know, and obviously that would kind of check that person off your list if, if that's what you're looking for. 
So it was a negative influence, negative yeah. recruiting. Myron? And I just echo all the comments. I mean, committing early was uh, so important for me especially. I mean, I had limited my – I had put my list down to six schools, but uh, I had 83 offers from schools from all co colleges, and they still didn't stop no matter I put those six lists out there or not. So it was continuously coming. And committing on September 1st for my senior year, just like Ruth said, relieved a lot of pressure and allowed me to focus on my senior year of school and football and uh, not really be bothered by all that. And, um, you know, the next, the next question, uh, what was it? Negative recruiting. Negative recruiting. Negative, negative recruiting. Um, I, I have to agree again. It definitely looks poorly on the person who is doing the negative recruiting because if you're confident in your school and what your school can do, uh, you would talk good about your school. You promote it. And you wouldn't really have to, you know, say University of Miami is a bunch of thugs or Florida State criminals or whatever you want to call it. It's just you will talk good about what your school has to offer and why you should come to that school and you're the perfect fit. So just like Ruth and Scotty said, just it doesn't look good on the person who's doing it. All right. Thank you. Yeah. Thanks, Gerald. Um, I just have a couple of quick questions. Um, I guess this is looking at the panel maybe best for maybe Peter, it's you. Um, <clears throat> you know, we've talked a lot about basketball, men and women, to some degree, football. <clears throat> is it your sense that, uh, that this is an issue in other sports? Um, Maybe men's baseball, you know, comes to mind perhaps, uh, or do you think that it's really limited to the sports that have been discussed today? Well, I think the, the biggest transgressions are happening in those major sports because of the money that's involved in, in the decisions. Uh, so much of the emphasis now is on recruiting. It's not on teaching anymore. You know, you, you're, you, there used to be a time when you would recruit somebody because of their potential and that you would look at them as a freshman and say, by the time that they're a junior, they're really going to be a, a terrific player, and we're going to build our program that way. And the pressure on those major sports just isn't that way anymore. Uh, but I think you're starting to see the same sorts of things happening in soccer uh, because soccer has gotten to be such a year-round thing, and you've got the travel teams and all that sort of stuff. The one difference with soccer, at least, is that the coaches have to go through a fairly rigorous certification program as they get up in uh, under 12, under 14, under 16. So that might be a model that you want to look at when you're, thought, when you're thinking about the certification process. Okay, thanks. Uh, I guess this question would be for Joe as the, as the coach on the panel. Um, I guess, you know, like it or not, not everybody has parents like the panelists who are equipped, interested, engaged. And so a lot of kids, you know, have to go someplace else. And it, it just seems like, for better or worse, like it or not, college, high school coaches really you know, probably need to have some sort of a role uh, in terms of screening, in terms of offering counsel and so on. I guess my question to you is, do you feel like, you know, as a coach, you're equipped to do that, to do that? And if, you know, if not, could you benefit from uh, some sort of service or resource that could better sort of equip you to equip your students um, against the onslaught of questions and messages and, you know, needing somebody to talk to or somebody to turn to in order to kind of cull through you know, the 83 offers or the, you know, constant text messages in the middle of the night. Right. Uh, I mean, is that, is that something you just sort of as a coach have to figure out on your own and help out, or could you benefit from somebody helping you in that regard? Um, I think it's a great question. I, obviously, I think you do it hopefully as you were an assistant coach, you, you were mentored by an, a head coach that, that went through that process. So I think that's probably the biggest way. Um, in addition, I think we can all benefit from anything along those lines. I, I would say from the coach's standpoint, um, I, and again, I, I know um, someone on the panel respectfully said that we were talking about 
high school recruiting, not college recruiting. And I think that we are talking about college recruiting. And, and I think that's where we're so – there's a disconnect a little bit here. Respectfully, I say that is because the – the high school, the, co- the, the AAU coaches are going to these events and because the colleges are there. And that is college recruiting. And I think, I think Scotty said that, and I think Mr. Reynolds said that, their bigger challenge was the AAU being the challenge rather than actually all the colleges. I think you all regulate your colleges pretty well. I really admire you for that. I don't, I don't think colleges are out of control. We have a player who's starting in North Carolina this year. We have a player at Maryland. They're not out of control for the most part at all. I think they, they're respectful. They, they, it's easy to work through that process. Um, where I think the challenge comes, again, is on that side. That's where I think more of the mentoring could come from in terms of helping people deal with that would be would be really important. Well, let me just say, too, I, I can say on behalf of the sport of basketball, there is, to Len's point, you know, a fair amount of discussion going on within the, within the basketball community about these sorts of issues. Who has oversight? I mean, some of these areas are, frankly, slipped through the cracks kinds of areas. You know, it's not really the colleges, and it's not really the high schools, and the AAUs are sort of out here. These are sort of non-educated, and the traveling teams aren't covered by anybody in the educational world. And so there's, you know, there's a question about who, you know, who should take that on. And maybe to some degree it's done by committee or maybe it's the federation in a bigger way. We're not sure. But I agree with Len that the discussion will get us to that place. And I guess my question maybe for Dan as a, you know, as an observer, a critic perhaps of the current system is, you know, if we could re-engineer this, okay, if we accept that, you know, given the number of colleges, the number of student athletes, the desire to have a winning team, you know, the need for some evaluation process, the need for decision-making by the students themselves, you know, all this stuff's going to happen in some form or fashion. But if we could re-engineer what's, you know, what's evolved, um, you know, what would be in your mind the top two features of a, of a re-engineered system? Well, I think the first thing would, uh, would take academic fraud out of it uh, would be if all freshmen are ineligible. If you, if you go back to freshman ineligibility and then give a fifth year for kids, so they still have four years to compete, five years to graduate. There is no incentive then to fix test scores or, or come up with the, the standards the NCAA has set. And believe me, the kids are going to these schools because they're promised transcripts and, 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 and test scores and different things. It puts kids into predator situations because they're trying to get a score or get whatever. I think that would eliminate almost all of the need for academic fraud. Um, otherwise, I think you have to work with – uh, your corporate partners in the shoe companies with the NBA, with the, all the different things. And I think those, those summits are a good idea to, to come up with, uh, uh, you know, it's awful tough with basketball because <coughs> these kids are worth, LeBron James is worth eventually a billion dollars. It's very hard to keep people away from wanting to be his representative. It's just so much money at stake. Um, but if you could find a way to curb that back, uh, and get serious about the problem and start admitting that, you know what, we're part of the problem, this is part of the problem, and follow that money. Because right now it's, there's just so many kids getting hurt in this. And if you watch this thing for 10 years, you watch kids that had a great future and they got steered in the wrong direction for all the wrong reasons. The adults are hurting the kids. And then the kids have, they got one shot. They got one shot. And once that goes wrong, they're done. They can't, they can't get back into the NBA. They can't get back to that college scholarship. You watch year after year the same people screw the kids up, and and uh, I just think there's got to be more accountability for everyone on how that's going down. Yeah, thank you, Thanks. Jerry. 
<clears throat> yeah, clearly this is a really complex process, and a lot of different groups are involved that need uh, need some correction. But I would like to I'd like to focus on the student athlete and the role of the student athlete in in the recruiting process. Um, as I listened to your stories, uh, it occurred to me that that at least as I used to remember the rules, there were a series of violations that were going on as you were being recruited by uh, by college coaches. And so it, it, it asked, it sort of got the question in my mind that, um, uh, you know, how aware are you or were you uh, of the rules that the coaches are supposed to be following? Uh, was there any formal education process that you had to go through or you went through to understand what the rules were, what, understand what these coaches could be doing uh, legally and, and shouldn't be doing? Uh, that's question number one. And then question number two, um, is it, it's too naive of me to think that if uh, students really understand what the rules are, that they might respond differently to the overtures that come from the, from the coaches doing things inappropriately. Okay, Ruth, why don't we start with you this time? <laughs> well, um, I don't know how much insight I can really bring to this, this topic. I think these guys have been through it recently. Um, but... Uh, it's hard when you're a high school student to really know all the regulations. That, and even as a, a student athlete in college, you have compliance and you have meetings and they tell you, but you still don't know all the rules and regulations. And, and a lot of them are, are minor ones that maybe don't make sense to you as a student or a student athlete. And, um, but I think that just is going to, the answer to your question is going to reflect upon the integrity of the person that you're talking about and whether um, they they desire that. I mean, there's a lot being thrown at these kids nowadays, and whether they want to go to a program that's standing up and and doing things the right way, or you know, whether they're being influenced. And I think that goes back to the parents and the people and the way they've been raised. It's a kind of a cycle that you're going to have to go through to answer that question. Marin, were you given any sheet of the rules or some <laughs> introduction to the rules? No, sir. No, I wasn't trained formally on any of the rules or regulations going around recruiting. Um, it wasn't done in my high school. Uh, the camps that I went to, they, they weren't discussed. Um, but some of the drastic things like taking money or, um, you know, having females in your room, you know, I just, common sense, I just knew, like, I couldn't do that. I just knew that was going to be a, a negative thing for me. And like my father mentioned earlier, I think all the schools that recruited me, they knew I was a different kind of person and I would have my family around me. So they didn't really, you know, go that route and, uh, you know, put money in, in my hotel room like some of my teammates at Florida State have told me that they have done at other visits they've been on or, you know, do anything illegal like that. So um, I don't think that uh, that a lot of the student-athletes know uh, what's right or what's wrong. Um, I think, again, like Ruth said, it comes down to the individual person, whether you have the moral constitution not to accept gifts or, you know, monies or, you know, anything of that nature, and it just really depends on you. Um, but there's really no formal training. I didn't go through any, and, and I haven't heard of any for football. I know football. Scott? Um, for me, I remember one school sent me, like, a packet. This is a packet of, like, it was about a book-sized book, book size packet, and I read, like, two pages, and I got tired. It's just, it's just, it's just, to, it's, it's so much, like, it's so much about um, what you got to do. It's all dates, and 
Um, I, like for me, I mean, I got other like I got books, I got other stuff to study than a, like a, a rule book. You know what I'm saying? I mean, not that it's not. I don't, I don't mean to be funny, but it's just truth. Like for me, and I know other players that they have, you know, their backgrounds are are much tougher than mine. So they they really don't care. You know what I'm saying? My friends and stuff, they they'll look at that pack and then just push it away. You know what I'm saying? And just don't, won't even pay attention because they got to, you know, they got other priorities to focus on. And 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 if um if a if a school does break a violation or you want to break a violation, it's kind of like um if you tell them no or something, it's kind of like a slap in the face to them. Like you don't want you don't you know you're 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 like you're like in limbo basically because you don't know if you say no to them, they're gonna you know check you off or something like that, you know what I'm saying? Mm -hmm. So I kind of got, you know, perspectives on kind of both sides. Okay. I would just say one more thing. Um, my high school coach did have the information that, you know, from the NCAA. And so, um, you know, I was fortunate that he actually read through it. And before I went out there, he would give me a little more guidance on some of the rules that, you know, as a student athlete in high school, you really just don't know. So I think that um, your parents or your coaches could help you a lot in, in that category rather than trying to get a high school student to sit down and read mm -hmm. an NCAA compliance packet. Joe, you have any comments on that from the coach's perspective for the yeah, kids' um, knowledge No, and, and again, I, I compliment the NCAA. I think I don't have problems. We don't, and we've had, I think we have nine or ten guys playing uh, division, um, NCAA athletics, Division One, Two, II, and Three, and I've never really had a problem with that. And I think, you know, you try to help them through a little bit through the process when things happen, but in the most part, I haven't found the violations, at least from my end, to be anything at all. I mean, you know, maybe the biggest thing is, I, I guess, the rules. You can say hello. Some people take a hello more than a hello. But, you know, maybe it's a minute versus two. But, but, but they're there to get to know the kids, and so I don't have a problem with that. But, I, again, I compliment the NCAA. I think the, the colleges in general, at least the ones we've dealt with, have been very, very ethical. Okay. Albert? Yeah, I, I was, uh, first of all, I was, I was upset as a uh, Miami Hurricane fan to learn that my governor, Jeb Bush, called you for another school, but we'll, we'll talk about that later. Uh, I, actually, my, my, my serious question is to Peter. I, I'm not quite sure I understood your, your, your suggestion, which is kind of intriguing, that the NCAA uh, run its own uh, camp, and I, and I wonder if you'd expound on that a little bit, and if... Uh, Dan and Joe would comment on whether it's realistic. Well, you know, I, uh, there's so much money involved in college athletics that we seem to be able to use for other things. I was struck by the uh, statistics around um, drug and alcohol abuse or the um, steroid situation. And the fact that we've invested in millions of dollars that we have in testing has brought the issue of, of, of uh, of illegal drug use down to 1.2% from almost 10 in about 20 years or so. And I think uh, these are issues that are going to have to take long-term solutions to. Uh, but who better to take it on than those that are most in, in, uh, involved in nurturing young people when they get to our college campuses? So um, I would recommend that the NCAA, in, in maybe in conjunction with the state federations, get involved in, in uh, putting on evaluation camps and having uh, kids that are interested in playing at the Div Division One or Two, Three level go through camps and play and let the coaches come to those camps to evaluate. 
um, and otherwise have the evaluation period center around summer league participation or in-season participation. And, yeah, there are going to be some schools that, because of their budgets, are not going to be able to travel all over the country and recruit some of those players. Um, but the last time I checked, what, you know, that's not the business that we're in. You know, we're not in the business of winning NCAA championships. We're in the business of providing the kind of uh, experience for people that when they graduate from college, they're prepared to be productive citizens. And uh, the, the comments that were made at the beginning of the last panel, values determine behavior. And ethics and values is what we're all about. And so if we're really, really committed to that, then it may make it may mean that we have to invest millions of dollars to clean it up. And as Len said, that there is a collaborative effort underway. And so people are already recognizing that they're not going to solve, uh, solve the problem by themselves, and it's got to be a collaborative effort. Uh, but the values that are getting uh, promoted, if the governor of the state of, of Florida is text messaging or calling a recruit, what the heck is he saying? He's saying that this is so important, you are so important, that I'm going to take time out of managing the state to call you. So now when the kid uh, doesn't get out of bed to go to class, you know, what's he going to think? Hey, look, man, I got the, the governor of Florida call me. Now, we're, we're lucky that Myron is the kind of person that he is, that his family's influenced his value system the way he has, so it's not going to his head. But not every kid is fortunate enough to do that. So if you drive up in a big car, if you've got your championship ring on, if you're wearing a $1,000 suit, if you make $2 million a year as a basketball coach and you go into most kids' homes, they're influenced by that. And they're saying, when do I get mine? We're about out of time. Let's, let's look at the, <laughs> the other two comments on uh, the summer project that he proposed, your response to it. The NCA could do it easy. They could wipe out. They could cut shoe companies out of the equation the moment they stop taking their money. Um, that's, all, that's all really it has to do. They can run their own camps. I think what I mentioned in my initial remarks, there's three funds of money coming in, sports agents, coaches and boosters, shoe companies. The NCA fought all the way to the U.S. Senate to make it illegal for a sports agent to give money. They've done nothing to say it's illegal for the other parties because sports agents have no benefit to the NCA schools. They don't, they don't give them any money. They don't do anything for them. They, it's illegal. The other ones can do what they want. It's not illegal. They didn't go to John McCain and ask for that. So once they stop taking the money and once they, they can cut them out at any point. Coach? Yeah, I would think that, and, I, and going back to Len's original comments, I think that it's great to have the discussion, but I think we have to be careful not to just do a little bit. I think that Peter's suggestion, I think, would be a huge first step. Um, the live recruiting period in July used to be four weeks. The NCAA solution was to put a dead period for four days in between. So I, even though the effort was there, and I think that, but it really wasn't significant change. So I think something like that would be significant change, and I think it would be fantastic. Would you join me in thanking our individuals who've been a part of this program? and thank the commission panelists for your uh, comments and questions. We'll take a break and then uh, we'll be starting again uh, with the third session in just a little while.
Thank you for listening to this podcast from the Knight Commission on Intercollegiate Athletics. This podcast was from a recording of the Summit on the Collegiate Athlete Experience on Monday, January 30th, 2006. For more information on the Knight Commission, please visit www.knightcommission.org.